The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, if you are here for your first Sunday with us at ICC, um, I think you're going to find that the message today is a little bit unusual, and it's not typical of the sermons that I normally preach here. And um, it's kind of funny. I, people are saying, you know, we're praying for you, and people seem very nervous for me, you know, um, to preach on this issue because, and, and I think we all recognize how absolutely divisive this issue of abortion has been in not just America, but the church as well. How even fellow Christians can really differ in their opinions about what the right thing is to do to represent the heart of God on this matter of abortion. And so um, here at ICC, by far what we teach is book, you know, out of, out of books in the Bible. And we try not to be too captured to the headlines on the newspapers and just addressing current events. But then sometimes there are these things that come along that just, uh, it almost seems tone deaf not to address it when there's so much conversation about it happening on social media and in the uh, news outlets and, 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 and among probably your friends and coworkers. And, and that really happened in June when um, this big ruling known as the Dobbs decision uh, was handed down by the Supreme Court. And so I want to just tackle that issue head on because I, I do feel like there's so much confusion about this issue of abortion even within the church. So why don't we pray together and let's uh, jump right into it. Father God, uh, we do need uh, your wisdom, Lord. You have told us that uh, if we are in Christ, that we have the mind of Christ and that we can discern all things. And so we claim that promise and ask through the work of the Holy Spirit that we might be able to cut through so much of the confusion and even the lies that exist and to be able to see clearly uh, so that in seeing clearly, especially on this issue of abortion that has really divided the country, that we would be able to know what your heart is uh, for each of us and for the nation. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, yeah, I, I think we have to be honest that this abortion issue has divided America for decades. And really the passion over the debate was heightened in 1973 with this landmark Supreme Court ruling known as Roe versus Wade. And through that ruling, essentially what the Supreme Court did was that it elevated abortion to the status of a constitutionally protected right. Uh, and so then after that, Roe v. Wade became the focal point on the abortion debate in America. It, and, and out of that became these dividing lines they were very clearly drawn between what we can call the pro-life camp and the pro-choice camp. Well, fast forward almost five decades later to this June, and you get what is known as the Dobbs decision. And the Supreme Court, once again, making headlines when they overturned Roe v. Wade, something that Americans, I think, never imagined they would see the day. And I wonder, what is your reaction to the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade? I've talked with enough of you 
here at ICC to know that, man, even in our church, uh, there's a spectrum here. You know, I know some of you really were excited about that this was actually the answer to much prayer and political action that we are seeing finally the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But I've also talked with some of you to know also that it's made you feel very uneasy and, and actually maybe even disappointed and, and actually very worried as to what this may mean for uh, not only the issue of women's rights in terms of control over their body, but also in terms of women's health and the real-world implications of the loss of Roe v. Wade. And then, and I suspect that this is maybe even the majority here at ICC. I've talked with some of you, and you just kind of go, man, I'm just, I don't know, you know? You feel like you're sort of in the middle, and you're conflicted. Um, because at one level, kind of growing up at the church, I think there's no doubt about it. There, there's much more alignment with the pro-life camp, and yet maybe there's certain aspects of what it means to be pro-life that confuse you, that you really struggle with and so you're not really sure how to feel about it now that roe v wade is no longer the law of the land and i and so i want to begin by actually first saying this i think it's actually rather unfortunate that this whole abortion debate has focused so much on roe v wade it's become the spotlight on which the debate has been fought in america and for many Christians in America, overturning Roe v. Wade became the singular objective in the fight against abortion. And that's why so many in the pro-life camp right now on social media are kind of taking a victory lap and are, are just saying, you know, we won. We won this abortion battle, and we finally did it. We got rid of the scourge of this land, Roe v. Wade. And as I'm going to share a little bit later in this message, I actually think that that attitude is kind of misguided, and I'll explain why. I also want to say this. I really struggle with these labels, pro-life and pro-choice. I, I don't think they're very good labels. Um, I don't think they do justice to the complexity of the abortion issue. As with so many other issues in America today, it's unfortunate that abortion has become so politicized. And what I want to say first is, is that politics feeds on tribalism. And tribalism has a way of oversimplifying complicated issues while demonizing the other side. And, you know, that's the appeal of tribalism, isn't it? But it's also the problem with tribalism is that when you join a tribe, and in this case it's pro-life or pro-choice or Republican or Democrat, it, it basically gives you all of the ready-made answers for life's questions, doesn't it? And so rather than wrestling with the complexity of a debate like the topic of abortion or the Dobbs decision, um, what you simply ask is, well, what does, what's the position of my tribe? You know, because I guess that's my position. Because let's be honest, it's incredibly hard to wade through all of the data and try to understand what the issues are in something as complicated as abortion and go, well, what does the Bible say to that? And then you say, I don't know. So much easier just to say, what does my tribe believe? Because that's what I believe. I also want to say that um, 
It's been a real challenge being a pastor in these years when there's so much upheaval in our country and our nation is so sharply divided on so many social issues. And so it's interesting that as a pastor, I'm expected not only to be an expert on the Bible, but also to be a pundit on all these current events and know how to take the Bible and apply it to every one of these situations. So it's not uncommon these days for someone to approach, oh, you're a pastor, huh? So what, what is your view on Roe v. Wade and overturning it? What is your perspective on the LGBTQ agenda? Where do you stand on environmentalism? What about BLM and critical race theory? How about the COVID vaccine? And you got to have an answer for every one of these, don't you, right? Well, the Bible says. <laughs> um, it should go without saying that there are no simple answers here. Um, and if we're not going to succumb to the simplistic responses of political tribalism, we have to do the hard work of wrestling with what it really means to honor God in an issue like abortion. Um, there are many ways we could address this topic, but let me just outline for you how I want to approach it. I want to begin my message with offering to you what I believe to be the foundations of a Christian ethic on what it means to be pro-life. And then I'm going to secondly say a word about the battle over Roe v. Wade and how it has distorted the church's activism on abortion. And then lastly, I want to close the message by then offering what I believe to be a way that Christians can uphold the Christian ethic on truly what it means to be pro-life. So let's begin with that first point. Let me begin by asking you a question. What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a person? You see, when we try to define personhood, uh, our instincts are naturally to gravitate toward certain capacities that make human beings unique. So we can say a person is one who exhibits consciousness, self-awareness, you know, sentience. Um, they are capable of displaying self-motivated activity. They have a sense of a will, causation. They can show agency. They have a minimal ability to enter into relationships through communication or whatever other capacities we want to describe socially. And we say that is what makes a person, a human being, unique. In other words, to be considered a person, you need to possess certain abilities or capacities to be designated personhood. But in the opening chapters of the Bible, we're told something profoundly different about how God defines personhood. And it's found right there in the opening chapter, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so the Bible starts with this bombshell. And it says, listen, every human being is made in the image of God. And then that truth is linked to another truth a little later in Genesis. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. 
Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Okay? And so, what the Bible seems to be saying in these opening words of Genesis is that people have a sacred value because they are made in the image of God. And so, therefore, no one can take the life of another person unless it is sanctioned by God. This is what we call in Christian ethics the sanctity of life. And Christian, Judeo-Christian ethics has so influenced Western culture that it's hard to imagine any other posture until you really study the histories and look at antiquity and realize through much of history outside of Christianity, this was not upheld as a central value of human life. It's what we call the sanctity of life. Not all human life was valued equally especially when you get into issues of slavery and gender disparities and things like that. And in this case, as we're going to see, even the unborn. In other words, the argument traditionally has been there's got to be something that you've got to show or prove to justify your status of personhood in this society. But what the Bible comes along and says it doesn't matter your race or your gender, or your income level, or your intelligence, or basically any capacity. Every human life is sacred. In other words, you don't have to earn the status of personhood by your capacities. Every human life is sacred because it is made in the image of God. Every human being bears that image in them, and so they are accorded with infinite worth in the eyes of God. I want to say this. This issue of personhood is not just a debate that philosophers are having in academia. There are very real-world consequences to this. Let me just give you one by way of example, and that's Nazi Germany. We all associate the Third Reich with the Holocaust and what they did to the Jews. But years before the Nazis went after the Jews, do you know that they went after the physically and mentally disabled? And that was the exact argument that they used, is that because they do not possess the same capacities that you and I possess, they should not be granted the full rights of personhood. And so it would be relieving a burden from our country if we got rid of them. And that's what the Nazis did. They started with the mentally and physically disabled because they said they are not full persons in our society. So we don't have to feel bad about what we do to them as much. And then they went for the gypsies and other foreigners that were unwanted in Germany. It was only then that they turned the attention to the Jews because by then it had already been primed in the German public that there are some people that we could categorize as non-persons in society. Well, I don't know. I, this may be making some of you uncomfortable, but we have to ask this question. Is the unborn child a person? Is the unborn child a person? This is where the idea of defining personhood based on capacities enters into the abortion debate. 
And it centers around this key word, viability. Viability. Because some argue that an unborn child is considered a person only if it is viable, meaning that it can survive outside the mother's womb. It's talking about capacities, abilities. And so for a fetus to be granted the distinction of being a person, it must be able to demonstrate certain abilities in its life. And that viability issue was one of the main distinctions in the Roe v. v. Wade decision. Viability as to what justifies a legal abortion. Because the argument was without the capacity to survive outside the womb, the unborn child doesn't have equal rights of protection or personhood, and that life can be terminated. One of the problems that arose in the abortion debate from the 1970s, though, is that as our technology improved, our ability to save a life of a premature child continued to improve as well, to the point where in 2020, we were able to actually save a 21-week-old child, premature child. Um, And so what had happened was, in the pro-choice camp, this made them very uncomfortable as the gestational age of viability got lower and lower and lower, what eventually happened was the pro-choice camp abandoned the concept of viability. And they said, we're not going to really talk about viability anymore. What we're going to say is just simply our sole and singular focus is on a woman's right to make decisions for her own body because that's what is important is autonomy for the woman who is involved in this pregnancy. And to be honest, I am actually very sympathetic to that value. I think that in as much as we are able to, both men and women as adults, we ought to have autonomy over the kind of medical procedures that are done to our own body. But in tackling this abortion debate, I think we cannot so conveniently dodge this fundamental question. What kind of life is inside the womb of that mother? What is the personhood status of that unborn child? And what I would actually argue is that the Bible doesn't answer that directly. There's no chapter and verse that I can point to you that answers that. So we have to make our argument by way of inference, of looking at what certain passages in the Bible say. And if you look at a passage like Psalm 139, 13 to 16, it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so David, as he writes the psalm, is speaking about a sense in which there was already a relationship with God established while he was yet an unformed child in the mother's womb. That interesting, that word unformed body in verse 16 is actually the Hebrew word golem. And some of you might recognize that word from Lord of the Rings, 
golem. A golem is basically an unformed thing, an incomplete, an unfinished thing. And so what David seems to be reflecting on when he talks about his golem is he's talking about him as a fetus, as an embryo. While I was yet being formed in my mother's womb, you knew me and you called me into being. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 to 41 gives another glimpse. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting story. Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And through the work of the Holy Spirit in that scene, somehow this six-month fetus leaps in recognition of the presence of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there are other stories like this, like Jacob and Esau, when they were in their mother's womb, and others, which basically, I think, paints a rather convincing picture of personhood for that unborn child. I find it very hard to avoid that conclusion. So in light of the Bible's teaching on first, the sanctity of life, and then the personhood of the unborn, I think it's actually pretty difficult to justify abortion in most circumstances. Now, I say in most circumstances because even in the pro-life movement, as most of you know, there is some passionate debate about what we call the difficult cases, particularly incest and rape and the mother's life being threatened by that pregnancy. Um, I want to say that this view of a Christian ethic on the unborn has largely stood the test of time for centuries, millennia. If you go all the way back to the second century in this document called the Didache, which was one of the main documents outside the Bible used by the church, it says it right there that Christians ought not to perform abortions like the pagans do. So to me, that is actually pretty straightforward. Well, now let's get to Roe v. Wade. And it's where things get complicated. If that's the case, then American churches' efforts to basically fight the battle like this, we are going to elect pro-life presidents who will then appoint pro-life Supreme Court justices who will then eventually overturn Roe v. Wade. That's what makes sense for a lot of American Christians. And I would argue that's what has made many evangelical Christians in America what we call single-issue voters. Because the argument is, in the face of abortion, how could you ever vote for a pro-choice candidate? And that has, in essence, caused a very tight marriage between many American churches and the Republican Party. And I have a problem with that. And I'll unpack that in a moment here. The logic can kind of go like this. Because Roe, meaning, I'm just going to use that short for Roe v. Wade, okay? Because Roe protected abortions and made it a constitutional right, 
then you would think that once Roe v. Wade passed, um, the number of abortions should have gone up in America, right? You could also argue that Republican presidents who have all been pro-life basically in the modern era, who have clearly stood on a pro-life platform, arguing to make abortion as hard as possible, defunding it from government dollars, as well as defunding Planned Parenthood, and making as many restrictions as possible on abortion, and Democratic candidates doing the exact opposite, that abortions should have gone up with Democratic presidents and gone down with Republican presidents. And the truth is none of that is true. None of that bears out in the data itself. The logic hasn't played out in the actual statistics. What the data actually shows is that after Roe, the number of abortions has steadily been decreasing in America, regardless of whether there was a Republican or a Democrat in office. In fact, abortion rates fell the most during the Obama administration. And since the Reagan administration, the only time an administration has seen an uptick in abortions is under Trump. Now listen, I think it's too simplistic to give Obama credit for the greatest decrease in abortions, just as I think it's too simplistic to blame Trump for the rise in abortions in his administration. But I think what we can say very clearly is that it just doesn't correlate well at all. Studies have shown what? That more women have abortions when they feel insecure, unsupported, and hopeless about their future. That's when women abort their pregnancies. And I think what we can say is that in the last five years, we have seen an incredible amount of insecurity and instability in our country. Everything from the pandemic to social unrest to economic instability, all of this has created an environment of insecurity and fear among Americans, especially among minorities and the poor, so that it is not surprising to me that we have seen an uptick in abortions in the last five years. What I'm trying to say to you is this. The bottom line is that the road decision hasn't actually been all that important in driving the trends of abortion in America. I also want to say something a bit more strong, though, than that. I think a pretty good argument could be made that purely from a legal matter, not just a religious one, Roe v. Wade was actually a very bad decision. It was not good law. Why do I say that? I say that because in the 1970s, America was in the midst of duking it out, trying to figure out where we stand on abortion. By then, around 30 states had banned abortion in the country. And when you did polls, you could see how divided the nation was between these pro-life and pro-choice camps. 
And what the Supreme Court did through Roe v. Wade was it basically undercut our nation's ability to have that democratic dialogue and decide as a nation on what we should do with abortion by unilaterally declaring it a constitutionally protected right. And what you could even argue is that through Roe v. Wade, it opened the door for the most sweeping permissive stance on abortion compared with even the most liberal democracies in Europe or anywhere else in the world. And that's something a lot of Americans don't realize, is that America has the most liberal, permissive abortion laws than just about any nation in the world. If you go to Europe, the vast majority of countries will not allow you to get an abortion past 16 or 18 weeks. In America, there are seven states where there are no term limits, where you can abort in the third trimester. 26 of them that will allow you to do it into what they are calling viability, which is a decision made by the abortion provider. In a 1992 lecture that Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave, who was a staunch defender of abortion, she even acknowledged that Roe v. Wade was breathtaking in its scope of what it permitted on abortion rights in America. And contrary to what many people think, the Dobbs decision that was handed down in June did not make abortion illegal in America. It didn't. What it did do is actually return the decision to the states to say let that democratic process that was interrupted by Roe v. Wade be resumed so that the decisions can be made by the individual state legislatures to reflect the view of the people in each state. And I think there's actually something positive about that. But what we can say as well is that based on maybe some early data here, there was a referendum in Kansas, which is one of the most Republican states you're going to find out there. And they had a referendum just a few weeks ago to say, do we want to make, keep making abortion a constitutionally protected right? Because the conservatives in the legislature wanted to overturn that. But the people of Kansas resoundingly rejected that, overturning of Roe v. Wade in that state level and say, we still want to protect abortion as a right. This is a heavily red state. And what it seems to be saying is this. Even though it's a deeply conservative state, as Roe v. Wade was overturned, they realized that there is a nuanced position on abortion where the argument was, listen, we all want the number of abortions to go down in this country but we don't want this radical 100% ban on every abortion in this country. There needs to be a more nuanced position than the extremist positions that the different sides seem to be taking. And I would actually hold that position myself. The reason why I say that is because we are already seeing the impact of these statewide anti-abortion laws that are becoming much more restrictive. And I'm telling you, there are some unintended consequences that are wreaking havoc on women's health. Um, 
in Texas, their law was passed before the Dobbs decision. And in Texas, basically they've made it illegal to have an abortion after six weeks. And on top of that, they passed legislation that allowed the common citizens of Texas to sue other people if there is even a hint that there is an aiding and abetting of abortion happening. So what has happened in Texas is it has created this horrible environment of mistrust and fear among healthcare providers so that even women who are miscarrying naturally cannot get the care that they need because providers are afraid of performing the surgical procedure to make sure that they're okay because it looks identical to an abortion and they could be reported. And so they're sending these women home and saying, just deal with it at home. And what they found, classic example, are these women who end up having their water broken at 16 to 17 weeks. At that point, that child cannot be saved. It is no longer considered a viable pregnancy. But the problem is there may still be a fetal heartbeat that goes on for over a week. And so even if medically she needs surgery, the surgeons will not touch it because that violates the Texas law that as long as there's a fetal heartbeat, you cannot do anything. And what the early studies are showing is that over 50% of these women are getting major complications through bleeding or through infections because they cannot be properly treated. Other fears that are coming down the pike is these exceptions to only to rape and incest. And you can imagine a woman that has been raped and now must inflict, be inflicted on er further abuse and trauma by having to prove in a court of law that she's been raped in order to be allowed to be given an abortion. How is a woman going to be able to prove that rape in many situations? I guess what I'm saying is this. These are just a few examples of how these anti-abortion laws are jeopardizing the health of pregnant women. What, what I'm saying is by taking the decision-making power away from doctors and mothers, these laws will result in more women suffering because they are not able to get the care they need in a timely manner. I'm sure these lawmakers did not intend for this to happen. But that is already what we're seeing in these conservative red states happening. Listen, I think we can all agree that we want the number of abortions in America to decrease. We want that trend to continue downward. But what the Roe decision has shown us is that the Supreme Court ruling was not the biggest determinator of making abortions go down. So then what does it actually mean to uphold the biblical value of being pro-life when it comes to the abortion debate? Well, let me try to spell it out for you as clearly as I can. I did mention a little while ago that the road decision did, in fact, result in some of the most sweeping and extreme abortion rights found anywhere in the world. And so now that the issue has returned to the states for them to vote on it, I think we ought to support legislation that curbs access to abortion without any limitations at all. There are some abortions, and it's not many, but it's still legal in states 
where basically it's hard not to call it purely infanticide. And so where there is too lax a law on this without any restrictions, I think something must be done. And Christians can get involved in supporting that kind of legislation. But here is where it gets complicated and where I'm not going to offer simplistic answers because it may sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but at the same time, we ought to have equal concern for many of the overly restrictive anti-abortion laws that have passed already or are in the process of being up for votes in state legislatures that can jeopardize women's health like it's happening in Texas. In other words, what I'm saying is I think we need a more nuanced approach and that isn't easy. It requires us to do the homework to see the merits of each set of laws that is being proposed in each state and thinking what will be the consequence of these laws on the impact of women's health as well as our efforts to protect that unborn child. I say that there needs to be nuance because I also want to make an argument that if Christians think that the way that we're going to bring righteousness in the country is to legislate it, I think that is so wrong-headed. I don't think that that's what Jesus taught. Imagine if what we are doing with abortion, we did with every moral stance, just applied to divorce. It says in the Bible that God doesn't want divorce, does he? And so let's make divorce illegal in every circumstance, or maybe only the rarest exceptions allow for it. Is that going to win us the day? I would argue not. And in fact, what that's going to happen if we outlaw divorce is that people who want a divorce will just secretly separate, won't they? But then what would Christians do if we maybe applied what's happening in the abortion debate? Is Well, let's go after them and let's put them to jail because they're not staying together as a couple. I think most of us recognize that's ridiculous. Would we really want to jail people for divorce? I think we would argue that's not how we fight for the sanctity of marriage as Christians. Instead, we would want to come alongside that troubled couple and counsel them and do everything we can in the hopes of preserving that marriage. We wouldn't want to prosecute them or put them to jail. But right now what is happening in the pro-life movement is historically... There's been a general attitude that we only go after the provider. And we see the woman who got the abortion as part of the victimization of abortion, just like the unborn child. But now a more militant wing of the pro-life movement is coming out saying, well, if we really do what is right, we ought to actually prosecute these women for murder. And I'm really grieved by that, that that is the mindset. I don't think this is the picture that Jesus gives us of what it means to be the salt and the light of the world. It's to legislate kingdom morality into existence in every nation where we have influence. I think under a plural society, we need to recognize that not everyone in America is going to share our values or believe in the sanctity of life or in the personhood of the unborn. And so what I would argue, secondly, is that rather than forcing our point of view primarily through legislation, Christians can make a big impact. I would argue the biggest impact on the number of abortions by doing everything we can to support women who have unwanted pregnancies. That's what the data bears out. Regardless of the legal or non-legal status of abortion, 
What makes the biggest impact is do women feel supported as they look to the future of what it would mean to have this child and bring this child into the world. In other words, how can we assist them financially so that they could afford the child care that they're going to need? What are the social services that they have the best chance of allowing this mother to be a good mother for this child? I think it means volunteering in crisis pregnancy centers and getting on the phone lines with these women who are struggling with this decision, counseling them and urging them. It's about bulking up our adoption industry to make it as painless and easy as possible for these women to choose the adoption option. One of the partners in our ministry is Kindred Life, where we are working alongside uh, these volunteers who are trying to help teen moms who have made the decision, the hard decision, to have their child and not abort to give them every chance of succeeding in life through this kindred life ministry. In other words, I think what we need is not legislation, but empathy and support and love on these women that are struggling with this decision of to terminate the pregnancy. William Cavanaugh writes, the one strategy for reducing abortions that has been proven to work runs through love, not power. Support for women who may not feel able to carry a pregnancy to term. This requires not a blind allegiance to a political party, but the promotion of a culture of life. That is the pivot that I think the pro-life movement needs to make, is not putting all our eggs in the basket of Roe v. Wade, but to genuinely say, how do we come alongside these women? and love them and care for them and support them into the decision of going through with that pregnancy and having this child. The last thing that I want to say is that we need to seek to understand those whose views differ from our own. We are living in such polarized times where no one wants to live, li listen to the other side. We're just all shouting at each other and demonizing the other party. And we're all living in the echo chamber of listening to voices that just agree with us. And I think to be a follower of Jesus means that we are willing to listen with empathy to what our opposition has to say to us. It's something that I've been immersing myself in as I prep this sermon. And I wanted to share some of these stories, but I just didn't realize how I could work it into the sermon. I think... Growing up in the evangelical church, I had this kind of flippant attitude toward women who get abortions and think that's how little they value life. Like, oh, they go out there and go sleep and get pregnant and they're so loose with their morals and then there they go and there's the consequence and now they don't want to deal with the consequence. And I began to hear the stories of women who have had abortions and see how incredibly difficult and painful that decision was of a woman that basically said I am barely able to feed myself I work at a fast food restaurant and if I have this child I will literally be homeless I am gonna have to live out of my car if I had this child or of a 14 year old girl who had no father who was wooed by an older man who said I will take care of you but then got her pregnant and ended up having that abortion at 14 and there's just story after story like this. And yes, we could say, ultimately, you are to blame. It's your life. You take responsibility. But I think there is also a place of compassion and empathy to realize what a broken world we live in. I think about that story of Jesus in John 8, 
when these women dragged, interestingly, only the woman who was caught in adultery, left the guy alone into the street and said, you, rabbi, you who stand for the righteousness of God. Old Testament law is so clear on this. So do you want to pick up the first throne, stone and let's get at it? And Jesus said, you who are without sin, throw the first stone. And what Christ displayed in that moment of capturing someone in their sin was not judgment and condemnation, but mercy and love and forgiveness. And I don't think America is hearing that from the church today. We're just taking a victory lap because of what happened with Roe v. Wade. What are we really doing to represent the heart of God in a world that is filled with unwanted pregnancies and women that are struggling with the desire to want to bear this child but with the overwhelming, crushing sense that they cannot do it. I think that is where the church needs to show up and represent the heart of Christ. Let's pray. As I said at the very beginning, there is no way I could possibly do justice to all of the different layers that exist and perspectives on this argument. And I know that probably even as I have spoken today, I'm sure I have offended some of you. And maybe as I played my cards, you may be actually rather bothered and say, well, I didn't know my pastor took that position. Um, and what about this verse? And you didn't quote that verse in the Bible. I get it. You know, what about Exodus 21 and, and on and on? There are a lot of other passages we could have looked at today. If I can just sort of summarize everything I'm saying here today, it's simply this. I think the way that the church is countercultural is that we hold to an ethic of the sanctity of life. And for me personally, I don't see how we get around not according that personhood to the unborn child. I stand by that. I stand by that firmly and unashamedly, even knowing how countercultural even that stance is in modern American culture today. But at the same time, if I could be prophetic to the church itself and the pro-life movement, I think also many Christians have got it wrong by being sucked into the politicization of this issue and thinking, man, all we have to do is get our people in the Oval Office and get them in the Supreme Court and we'll overturn Roe v. Wade and yeah, we did it. And that is so far from the truth. As you can see from the data, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, or anything, these things have not impacted much at all the rates of abortion. But when you actually ask the women who are aborting their children, often with tears in their eyes, they will tell you their story as to why they aborted. As they look to a future with little hope, with no support and said, I can't do this. I can't do it. And I think it's precisely in that moment of opportunity that the followers of Jesus Christ need to realize that's the kingdom of God, opportunity to come into and alongside women like that and say, how can we help you? How can we support you and love you? I think when it gets to legislation, it is complicated. 
There is no simple answer here to say either pro-abortion or anti-abortion. I think the kind of laws that need to be enacted need to be nuanced and recognize that there are times, perhaps, when the lesser of two evils is to terminate that pregnancy. And we need to allow for that in our laws. And that is in and of itself a very complex issue that we have to wrestle with. But in all of this, I pray, pray that the guiding light would always be love, love and empathy and righteousness. And what does that mean to see all of that coming together? It's not easy. It's not easy. Truth and love must stand side by side in one position, in one decision that we make. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a moment, but I just, can I just give you an opportunity to pray? I know for some of you, maybe even, I, one of the biggest burdens on my heart was that some of you, this may not be theoretical. I mean, hundreds of thousands of abortions happening every year in this country. I wouldn't be surprised if some of your extended families or maybe your direct family has been touched by the issue of abortion. And maybe all of this is very triggering to you. You didn't know you were walking into this this morning, and I feel the weight of that and the burden of that. And if there is the shadow of abortion within uh, your family life, I, I pray that what you would know is that even in that situation that the mercy of God is available to you. The heart of God is for all of us to know his forgiveness and to be restored to him and to know what true life is. So would you just pray for a few moments? And I don't know where God may be leading you in this. Like I said, this is not a typical sermon that I preach at ICC. And even as I think about how I'm going to wrap up a message like this, I don't know. I don't know even how to direct you. But maybe as you saw some of those points that I laid out, would you just bring whatever is convicting your heart before the Lord, maybe a prompting of the Spirit, where he may be calling you to get involved in this issue of abortion and, and just think about that for a moment and, and lift that up to God in prayer. And then in a moment, I'm going to lead you into a time of communion before God. But let's just come to God in a few moments of silent prayer before him.